and welcome to the podcast made by students in work and organizational psychology at the Norwegian University of Science and Technology. This week, the students Anna Berg and Sean Kinnear interview Dr. Dawn Nicholson, a widely experienced lecturer in organizational psychology from Kent University. Let's go straight into the interview. Thank you very much for joining us, Dawn. Welcome. Yeah, thank you. So to start off, can you take us more specifically through your career, your education? Sure. So I actually did my um, first degree, funnily enough, at the University of Kent back in the 1980s, because um, clearly I'm, you know, about 100 years old. Uh, and I did my degree in uh, English and American literature. Um, and the reason for that was initially my career prospect was that I wanted to be a journalist. So I graduated in 1985. And in 1985, certainly in the United Kingdom, there was pretty much a huge recession going on. And so journalism jobs, amongst many other jobs, had evaporated. And traditional routes into journalism, which were then sort of getting a job with a local newspaper and working your way up, had pretty much disappeared. However, there was still a sort of need to get a job. And so I took a complete shot in the dark. Uh, at an application um, to a firm called Arthur Anderson, uh, who you may or may not have heard of. Arthur Anderson no longer exists and were part of the demise of uh, Enron, basically. Um, but they were a tremendous firm, uh, an incredible firm, which at that time were one of the, um, the leading, as they were then, big four accounting and tax firms uh, in the world. And so I went from doing an English and American literature degree to actually, first of all, doing um, expatriate tax work. So I was doing tax work for um, typically wealthy Americans who were living and working in London for a period of time. And I worked at Arthur Anderson for nine years. And then I, one of my clients was a big American investment bank called Morgan Stanley. And a job came up at Morgan Stanley and I decided to apply for it. So I went to work at Morgan Stanley. So I switched at that point from being an external advisor, I suppose, to working in an in-house role inside human resources. Now, I think when people talk about human resources, they typically think about hiring and firing, but um, my own role in human resources was a little bit more on what I describe as the technical side of HR. So I was responsible for things like compensation, employee benefits and well-being, HR data and analytics, diversity and inclusion, recruiting, so really more of the sort of technical pieces of HR rather than getting involved in employee relations and, and things of that nature. And I spent 16 years at Morgan Stanley. It was an incredible experience. It was a really, truly, truly wonderful firm that I still feel very, very great, great affection for and much passion for. Um, but I suppose having started my life in professional services with Arthur Anderson, there was a piece of me that basically had a question mark over whether or not I could uh, actually be successful as a partner in a big professional services firm. So I reached a certain point in my career at Arthur Anderson, where I, at, at Morgan Stanley, where I felt I needed to answer that question. And that was the reason at that point in time why I switched and decided to go back into professional services and became a partner at PwC. So I spent three years at PwC and then I hit the grand old age of 50 and decided that if I was going to do something else with the rest of my life, that was a sort of pivotal moment. 
Uh, and at that point in time, having sort of worked in and around and advised HR for many, many years, I thought, you know, you better sort of get some formal education about this whole sort of psychology bubble speak that you've been, you know, sort of masquerading as, you know, as an expert in for the, all these last years. So, so at that point in time, so this must be about now 2013, I actually decided that I would do a psychology bachelor's degree. So I came back to Kent. Um, I quite like closing circles. So I came back to Kent at that point um, and put myself into a classroom with 250 other psychology students. The only difference being that I was, you know, 30 odd years older than them. So, you know, I had plenty, plenty of stereotypes and preconceptions about them and they had plenty of stereotypes and preconceptions about me. But between us all, we worked it out. Um, so I did my bachelor's degree that took three years. And then I started my PhD. Uh, I think it's fair to say that I'm obsessed with the psychology of decision-making, having been privy to some great decisions, privy to some awful decisions, hopefully made some great decisions, but certainly made a lot of awful decisions as well. So I sort of got fascinated in the psychology of decision-making um, and that's where I did my PhD and then I finished my PhD last year. And now I'm lecturing in business and organizational psychology at Kent. So that's kind of, in a nutshell, that's it. Um, you, uh, you mentioned your, your, your teaching organizational psychology at Kent now, but there's been some development, hasn't there? Because now you've uh, created a whole, whole bachelor's course. Revolve, revolve. Yeah, so I mean, um, certainly in the time that I was there and the time that, um, that you were there, Sean, we had a business psychology module, which was incorporated, incorporated into the undergrad uh, and into the undergrad program. And there was, a, I think, a sort of, it's fair to say, a, a small sort of master's, uh, a master's program. But basically, uh, last year, we launched a business psychology undergraduate degree. Um, and uh, yes, I was responsible, responsible, I suppose, for for driving that effort and driving that initiative, initiative and putting together a lot of the sort of content and the modules and uh, which has been fantastic, actually. Um, and, uh, you know, I've been able to draw, obviously, on a lot of my industry expertise and also very kindly rely on a lot of my former industry colleagues to come and give their extremely valuable uh, workplace insights to my undergrad students, which I think is very important to understand the application of a subject like this in the workplace. That's really cool. <laughs> yeah, I was just wondering, um, because since you've started this uh, bachelor's or this course, uh, I guess that indicates that you find uh, business psychology or organizational psychology to be very relevant for today's and probably the future of work life, I guess. But can you Looking back at uh, your career in um, Arthur Anderson, right? That was um, the beginning. PwC. Yeah. Um, are there any common features with um, the use of uh, human resources, the use of organizational competence, etc.? If you understand what I mean. Um, I mean, I think that uh, I think obviously going back to the 1980s, you know. Life at, life at work was very, very different in those days. Although I will say that I think the professional services firms like Arthur Anderson, as it then was, Price Waterhouse, I mean, they all had different names in those days. I think they were you know, very ahead of the game in certainly the way that they approached the um, development of their employees. Now, you know, throughout my career at Morgan Stanley, which was, you know, it was a long career, 16 years, things changed really quite radically. And I think I saw very much that HR moved from being 
a very transactionally focused uh, function. I mean, there still is transaction in HR, you'll never get away from that, to being much more of a sort of strategic partner with um, you know, a much more valuable role to play in the organization. And that, that is still evolving and there is still work to do. But I think the whole focus on employee well-being um, and you know the benefits, if you like, that employees derive from being in the workplace, and that that much clearer idea of a linkage between, let's be honest, you know, employee productivity, um, employee motivation, and actually creating a workplace that is a you know a, a much better workplace. That whole idea of becoming uh, becoming an employer of choice. Um, I think became much, much more prevalent and much more important, basically. Um, and that was certainly the evolution that I saw. So I, so I do think that that continues to be something that is progressing and is a big feature of workplaces these, today, more, more so than when I began my career back in the 80s. You talk about how HR is still uh, somewhat transactional and you, but maybe moving in maybe the right direction of focusing more on well-being of your staff. Um, but I was wondering, when when you were working in Morgan Stanley, did you what, what were the most sort of rewarding uh, aspect of your job doing HR, and what were some of the more well, what were some of the more challenging ones that that made you feel maybe less comfortable about the job you were having? Just as a, just from from a perspective of people wanting to go into HR now and understanding how that field really looks from someone who's been in the game at such a high level mm -hmm. for so long. Yeah. I mean, the rewarding aspects are it's, it's doing a job that ultimately has an impact across the entire organization. Um, you know, the way that HR operates and functions, the policies, the ideas, the concepts that it brings to the table um, have a real bearing on, I think, employees' day-to-day -day experiences. Um, and I think working with um, senior management who realize that um, and to you know, ask for that input and those insights from HR, I think is, is extremely valuable and extremely rewarding. I mean, you get to go and sit at the table with you know, people like the chief executive, the CFO, the chief operating officer, you know, uh, and obviously I was functioning in a European context, but, but to be in the room with tremendous, and, you know, people like that, amazing brains. I mean, frankly, just, you know, super, super smart people. Uh, I mean, it's just incredible. Um, and also to see that, you know, they they did put people at the sort of center of the discussions, basically. It wasn't just, you know, the businesses there and the people come after, the, pe the people were at the center of the business. I mean, the challenges, I think, you know, I think HR constantly has a need to, to, to do a couple of things. It has to constantly reinvent itself because the challenges are different every day. Uh, and I think, it, I think it constantly has to show its value. Um, and one of the things that I think helped me having been in professional services, which is very much about you know, demonstrating your value as an advisor, was to sort of translate those values into my internal role within HR and to constantly be asking myself and my HR colleagues, where are we showing our value here? You know, if I go down to the trading floor and ask the employee, what do you think HR does? I want the response to be more than just hire and fire people. I want it to be a better response than that, basically. So I think those two things sort of came together for me quite well. Having had that external experience as an advisor and then being able to bring that in-house I think helped 
helped me and hopefully helped my colleagues to sort of elevate the status of the HR function within Morgan Stanley. You talk about um, you talk about decision making, and uh, you uh, you mentioned before we started that you're a bit of an open book. Um, what what um, what do you think you're talking about when you say that you may have made some awful decisions in the past? <laughs> well, I mean, I think it's a I think it's a combination of things, really. I mean, if I look at you know some of the things that I've done myself, um, uh, have I made have I made right decisions when it comes to you know some of some of my own personal decisions or whatever? I think from a workplace perspective, you know, maybe I've backed the wrong product, maybe I've backed the wrong advisor. Maybe I've backed the wrong employee, you know. Um, so I think it's I think it's those types of things, really. Um, you look back with the benefit of hindsight. Um, you know, did I have all of the information that I needed to make the decisions? Maybe not, you know. I mean, one of the things that I that I also keep saying in a you know in in the context of my role now is that um, you know there were virtually no psychologists who bought me anything during all of my time, twenty eight years in business. No psychologist really bought me anything of interest, frankly. Um, so, um, and I think an, an aspect of that is, uh, and you know, we could talk about this forever, but an aspect of that is the fact that, you know, the language of business and the language of academia are not the same. Um, and until that gap is reduced or bridged somehow, then, you know, the ability to work together effectively between business and academia is always going to be limited. I'm gonna I'm gonna throw in a nice one though. Um, is, is there a decision you're particularly proud of that you think? Can you, can is there you a decision that I'm particularly proud of? You know, I mean, I think that's a diff difficult one. I mean, I, I think I, I I took a I took a I mean, it, it was to go right back to the very very beginning when I you know decided to to sort of go and work for Arthur Anderson. I mean, this was a firm that I knew absolutely nothing about. You know, it was one of the premier accounting firms in the world at the time. That wasn't my background. That wasn't my family's background. You know, it was a total punt. I needed a job and I wanted to stay in the south of England and I wanted to work in London. It was a total punt. I mean, I wasn't I wasn't an accountant. I wasn't a number person. Um, so um, that's probably, you know, one of those where you, you take a shot in the dark and you go for it. But you, you say you're not you say you weren't an accountant or a number person. But then suddenly you were finding a career path within it and a trajectory, which frankly is not normal. Um, how did you become an accountant and a <laughs> person? Because you did, you must have. I mean, I think, well, I mean, I did, but the, the focus of my job was basically, as I said, doing tax, um, basically. I mean, believe it or not, you know, tax is fundamentally about relationships. You know, having a relationship with someone that, you know, you're doing their tax work, that is a pretty intimate relationship. You know, I'm asking people to tell me that, you know, about their the insides and outsides of their financial well-being and, and you know, relation, everything that's going on in their finances, basically. So I think for me, it was about basically building, building, building that relationship with people. I mean, the numbers ultimately come. Um, and, you know, I mean, at the beginning, you know, computers were not not very evolved at that point in time it wasn't like we were you know adding things up on an abacus but you know sometimes we were cross-checking what came out of the computer on a calculator uh, but obviously things evolved very much the value i think comes in being able to 
and this is a little bit like psychology as well, being able to take those numbers on the page and interpret it and actually translate it into something that is meaningful for someone in the context of their own, in that case, financial situation. Going back a bit to um, your career in three big international companies, um, how would you say it is to work in an international company, for instance, compared to a national company regarding, for instance, regulations, um, relationships internationally, etc. I mean, I certainly, um, when I was uh, in my first career, obviously I was working, I was working principally with Americans who were based in London. I needed to educate myself about the, or not educate myself. I mean, obviously I was being educated by my employer as well. So getting to grips with, first of all, the sort of legal and tax aspect of, of, of my role was important, but then, getting culturally aware of Americans, particularly many of my clients worked in financial services. You know, Salomon Brothers, the legendary Salomon Brothers was one of the greatest firms in the world then in, in investment banking and going through its massive evolution. I mean, these were scary people, right? <laughs> scary, scary people. Um, so getting, getting a, an understanding and a knowledge of financial services Americans, all of those things, you know, that that was important. When I moved to Morgan Stanley, yes, I was working with a lot of Americans, but it, it coincided with the time that Morgan Stanley was was rolling out more across Europe, basically. Um, so we started, we had a very international workforce anyway, based in London, including a lot of Europeans. And over the course of my role as our, as our European operation grew, then there was a need obviously to work across across Europe as well as with my US headquarters. So certainly I had to, you know, get understand very well that the challenges are different from country to country across Europe. The cultures are different from country to country across Europe, as well as, you know, dealing with the US headquarters, dealing with a, um, being in the European headquarters myself in London, and then dealing with my colleagues across Europe, basically, as they as they expanded their business and, and expanded their own remit. And what they required in terms of support from me, you know, varied. Um, and sometimes I had to tell them that I could do things. And sometimes I had to tell them that I couldn't do things basically. And so, um, so it's, it's, it was also about, again, ma a management of relationships, basically. I'm clearly not going to do something for one person sitting in Paris. That's going to cost, you know, the company, you know, hundreds of thousands of euros, right? So it's, it's about sort of scaling that, scaling that effort really. Yeah. Um, uh, did you notice any like prominent differences regarding, uh, for instance, personal differences from yeah, a French employer versus an American em employee, for instance? Um, this is a, this is a good question. Uh, yes. I mean, there, there are differences. No question. No question. Are the French um, French? Sorry? Are the French very French? Yes, they are. <laughs> yeah. In a nutshell. Um, I would probably say of all of the locations that I dealt with, um, they were the most interesting and sometimes, sometimes the most challenging. So, uh, um, so yeah, perhaps I, perhaps I'll just leave that there basically, but, but yeah, I mean, each, each brought its own difference and challenges. Um, and, uh, but you know, it was all, it was all incredibly gratifying and incredibly developing in, in, in self-developing in different ways. Mm. And uh, when we sent you the questions, we we also sent you some examples from uh, the Norwegian uh, Work Environment Act, uh, which um, 
is um, by my impression uh, from the in, from an international perspective uh, regarded as um, quite different from other working regulations because it does really regulate the work life both for employers and employee, uh, employees and working in international companies you i guess you have to um uh, take into consideration different working regulations um how do you do that and how do you cope with that yeah i mean it's 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 certainly very challenging i mean uh, you know clearly working for a us organization there's a big element of needing to educate us organizations about you know working practices principally across europe because you know um, in Europe, there's a much higher bar in terms of employee benefits, working time directive, all of these types of things, which, you know, were really sort of unknown, really unknown in the States, right? Um, so so we, we have a much more generous starting point uh, in Europe than they do in the United States. So, so there's a big element of that. And then I think, you know, working from location to location, I mean, yes, you can set a minimum bar in terms of what you offer and what you, you know, what you do. But then you have to recognize that there are, there are always going to be locations where you may have to go beyond that, depending on depending on what the local requirements are. So you start with a sort of as level a playing field as you can get, but recognize that, you know, you may have to flex that depending on whatever the local requirements are. You can't just ignore those local requirements. Um, so just just from a perspective of us, us being Norwegians, <laughs> um, if we were to work in England, for example, um, which you have some experience with. Um, do you think perhaps we would find it different? So, so what I'm what I'm referring to is that here, there are, there, there is this this um, work environment act that really does regulate on a on a on a law basis, not just on a company basis, but on a law basis for what uh, for what businesses have to do to ensure the well being. And you know different different things like paid leave for paternal leave, uh, sick leave, all those sorts of things. It's it's regulated by law um, to to an extent that I've gathered is a bit different, at least from outside uh, our little environment. Uh, and I was wondering, did, did, so how how do you see? Do you feel that businesses are mandated to uh, look after their employees? Do you feel that the government puts enough in place uh, to, to allow for it? Or do you feel that it's a bit more sort of free? For instance, also in a health and a health promotion perspective. Um, I mean, I think uh, I, I think it's if I think about the UK, I mean, things have changed, you know, quite a lot. I think there's a lot more now that is enshrined within the regulation than there was before. I mean, things like paternity leave, for example, once upon a time, it was not really legislated and it's not that long ago actually um so then it was down to the employer to say you know we're going we're going to offer this basically um but i think now the government i think has made a much greater effort to you know again set a minimum playing field as it were a minimum threshold um I, you know some employers are, are able to go and choose to go far beyond that but clearly there is a massive cost associated with with you know providing some of those benefits beyond the sort of statutory requirements um, and not every employer is able to do that basically you know I think it I think it really does vary from employer to employer I mean I think certainly in the big corporations and the bigger firms that have deeper pockets you're always going to get you know a, a richer array of 
employee benefits, if you like, that go beyond the statutory minimum. Smaller employee employers clearly have a more challenging uh, prospect if it comes to providing those types of things. In Norway, an issue is actually that we, at, at least over the years, it has been that we don't have enough um, small independent businesses. We, we, we do sort of seem to combine ourselves into these rather bigger state-sponsored, almost socialist, if you'd like, um, um, businesses that maybe that maybe because we don't have uh because we because you don't have as much regulation do you think it allows for the existence of more smaller businesses granted without necessarily all those uh sort of services for the uh employees um i don't know that that's the sort of logical connection i mean i think that um I think that perhaps it's just more of a view in, in, in this country that people don't always fit in, see themselves as fitting into, you know, those bigger corporations. I mean, you know, they don't, they don't always offer what people want, right? If I think back to the corporations that I, you know, work for, you know, you're working within a framework. Yes, you may have the ability to sort of flex some of those things, but, you know, a lot of those corporations from a business perspective or whatever, you know, are looking in many ways, for a, for a sort of one-size-fits-all approach. I mean, you know, uh, if you look at things like mergers and acquisitions, you know, I mean, I can remember being involved in some M&A transactions when I worked at Morgan Stanley, where, you know, we brought in smaller companies, for example, they became part of Morgan Stanley. And there's always that challenge of, you know, moving from being a smaller company to being part of, you know, a great big white shoe American investment bank. I mean, you know, so recognizing that change and not everyone wants to be in an environment like that. Yes, there are benefits, but some people want the ability to work in organizations that move faster, have more flexibility um, or just, you know, where they have the feeling that they're not not quite just a sort of payroll n number, but actually, you know, someone knows their name. Um, so so I think those are the those are the reasons why those types of um uh, those types of companies perhaps are a little bit more prevalent. But of course, those are the poten potentially the, the very companies now in the current situation that we find ourselves are perhaps more likely to be very challenged. I don't know if it is correct, but I do um, remember that uh, one of the reasons that um, we have such um, broad regulations is because Norway and Scandinavia has a really big public sector uh, um, opposed to, for instance, England and America that has a bigger private sector uh, and because of um, the size of the public sector um, we also have something called um, the, the Nordic model which, <laughs> which uh, uh, if I remember it correctly it's um, about a very close collaboration between employer employees and the unions um, and um, which enables uh, employees to um, mold their working environments um, in a much larger scale. Uh, what would you say that the uh, positions of unions and employee involvement uh, is in, for instance, Morgan Stanley, PwC or other international companies? I mean, none of the companies that I worked for were unionized. Um, I mean, uh, at Morgan Stanley, we uh, when the when the legislation came in regarding uh, European Works Councils. We did create a Works Council. 
in, in London. Um, and again, you know, that was quite an educational exercise um, to sort of bring my American, my American friends and colleagues on, on, on board and up to speed with that. Um, I mean, there are still unions represented in the United Kingdom, but, but my sense is, you know, compared to what you've just described, they are very much smaller and have a, you know, a, a smaller role and a smaller voice, basically. Certainly in, certainly in the industries that I worked in. What would you say, or what do you think is the impact of employee or and uh, union involvement? Um, if you are to compare big versus little involvement, do you think it, uh, it, it has an impact? I mean, I think it can go either way. You know, if the, if the employee feels that they have a direct route to the employer, and that is an open, transparent relationship where they both listen to each other, then I think that, you know, the, the impact of the union being not being there is, is you know, minimized, basically, because obviously you don't need the bridge, right? The union is there as a bridge in many ways, it seems to me. Um, but if you have a direct relationship between the employer and the employee that is working effectively, then I think that you know, achieves the objectives, basically, which is about, you know, maintaining good employer-employee relations. If you were to move on, to, uh, you talked about earlier about how uh, the field of HR has evolved. Um, looking into the future, how, uh, how do you think HR will look and how will people with, for us, like us, for instance, with organizational psychology, how will we fit into this uh, work life? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good question. You know, I think obviously we're all kind of wondering what the future looks like now. Um, and I think that, you know, there's a, there's a big debate going on, obviously, about, you know, is the office, for example, dead? Well, I don't think anything ever totally dies, right? And everything is always, frankly, cyclical. Um, so, um, so I think HR needs to be positioned right at the very beginning of, of that discussion. And business psychologists, organizational psychologists need to be very much at the forefront of that discussion. You know, what does the workplace the physical workplace of the future look like you know how much time do you spend in the office versus how much time do you spend doing what we're doing right now um, you know one of the things that I'm quite interested in going back to decision making and I haven't actually looked at this yet is if I'm asking if I'm asking four of us to make a decision on the screen right now does that differ from four of us making a decision in the room where I can't see what you're doing I can see your face but I can't see what else is going on basically you know if I'm reading the room my reading the screen in the same way that I'm reading the room, basically. So I think there are some, some really interesting things here. I mean, creativity is creativity in an online environment being compromised, basically. I mean, what I think is interesting, if I just think about some of the businesses that I worked in, you know, they are relationship businesses, fundamentally. How do you do, how do you manage a relationship business when you can't physically relate to someone, you know? Um, so how do those models change, basically? So I think HR needs to be at the forefront of all of that. And I mean, clearly what I've, you know, I think what we've all witnessed over the course of the, the last several months is much more of a focus on the employee, much more of a focus on employee well-being. Although I think that trend was there. I think this has really um, alleviated it. But also at the same time, you know, much more of a focus on employee productivity, right? I mean, everyone at the beginning was saying, wow, everyone's so productive. And now it's like, actually, we're not, we're not quite so sure that everyone really is that productive. You can never get away from productivity, right? Fundamentally, that's what it has to be about. 
Um, but I think that there is much more, of a, much more of an understanding that, you know, you can't separate these two things. I mean, it is a cliche, but it is true that a happy, contented employee is a productive employee, will go that extra mile for you. And, you know, you will ultimately get, to put it sort of crudely, you'll get more out of them than someone who is not happy, right? I mean, stands to reason. Sounds like a win-win though, doesn't it? I, th- I mean, I think it is a great opportunity. I mean, I hate to sort of use this phrase, you know, for a reset, but um, but I think it is a good opportunity for a reset. But, you know, there's, there's going to be a lot of work, I think, that needs to be done, a lot of careful, well-thought-out work. And again, this comes back to, you know, my favourite subject of decision-making. People need to be sort of making very careful and considered decisions, not just grabbing for the next immediate thing. Oh, hey, let's have everyone work from home. Oh, wait a minute, maybe that doesn't really quite work all the time, right? So I think people need to sort of be, I mean, I I think one of the the greatest challenges with decision-making is people not giving themselves the time or thinking far enough ahead. What am I not seeing here? What am I not seeing here? Now, you can't, predict every black swan like a pandemic that comes across your path, right? But at the end of the day, we need a little bit more foresightedness, I think. It's easy to kind of jump on the trend and go with the trend. I think the smart people will basically, you know, try and think a little bit further ahead than that. Like I said, working from home is not the obvious answer for every single person, right? Um, I'd, I'd like to go on to a bit more about decision-making your uh, new academic work, but I'd, I'd like to just um, before before we do that, we were talking about the future of uh, HR and maybe our future specifically in HR. And uh, I, I was wondering if you thought you could predict maybe some of the skills that are going to be essential or necessary in the near in the near future. Or if you think they're going to be different from how they uh, from what, what has been important now. I mean, I think that. Um... I think what is going to be interesting is the uh, introduction of uh, the, or the greater introduction of automation. Um, I mean, obviously, a lot of automa- automation has gone into, for example, recruiting. Um, you know, we can debate whether it's too much. We can debate whether it's good enough, um, whether it's, it's gone too far. Uh, you know, people get rejected on the basis of algorithms, right? I mean, that's, that's the reality. So I think whether there is a sort of clawback there or you know, the need for better and more human intervention there, I think is something in the first place. Um, I think uh, as well as that, you know, there is almost every, everything that I pick up tells me that one of the key employability skills is team working and collaboration. There's an implicit assumption, and I think it starts in a university context, that you just put people together and they do it. And I don't actually think it works that way. I think you need to sort of help people collaborate and work effectively in teams. Um, and I think there needs to be a lot, of, a lot around that. And I also think, I mean, you know, this is another one of my sort of bugbears, equality and diversity, right? Everyone says, hey, put a diverse team together and boom, everything's much, much better. Okay, only if you let that diversity speak, only if you let that diversity you know, be properly heard, and only if you actually apply that diversity, right? And if I have a diverse team and I'm actually working with them and saying, okay, here's a nice intervention that we'll try and this will make everything work better. Well, maybe actually the intervention shouldn't even be a one size fits all. Maybe my diverse team needs different things to function effectively. 
So I still think that one of the things that is not there um, is, the, is the full recognition of what I call the diversity premium in things like group working, decision-making. So I really feel that these, these things, and again, you know, thinking about EDI across the wider workforce, are where HR needs to be sort of focusing its time and attention, as well as, I mean, you, you cannot, I don't think you can minimize um, employee well-being. And I think, again, you know, the, 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 what, what is employee well-being has changed. Once upon a time, it was, hey, we've got a great medical plan. Okay, got a great medical plan, but now what, right? I think there's more and more and more that could and should be done there. I think it's interesting what you say about diversity. I think diversity requires diversity. But um, moving on to moving on to more of your academic life, uh, you have now become a lecturer, which is quite a transition. How has that how has that been for you? Yeah, I mean, quite interesting. You know, I always did like the sound of my own voice, Sean. You know that, so yeah. <laughs> So, so in that respect, it's great, I, I, you know, but, but what, what is um, really important for me in terms of the, the, the lecturing and the development, particularly of the business psychology program, going back to that is, you know, I, I feel particularly with my experience, I can give the program a real research into practice focus. And that's very important for me. I think it's, I mean, the theories are great. You know, you have to have the theories, they have to be there. I totally get that. And, you know, I find some of the theories very, very fascinating. But I do believe that, you know, the ability to apply is critical, frankly, unless you're, you know, if you want a career in academia, you know, great, no problem with that. But I think I think that the question for me is always, OK, if I walked into, I don't know, Arthur Anderson, PwC, Morgan Stanley with this <laughs> intervention, with this intervention and said, OK, everyone, let's do this. You know, would they look at me like I was crazy or would they say, yeah, OK, Dawn, we'll give it a whirl because we can see it working. Right. Mm. Do you think your approach is different from uh, people who have started in academia and stayed within academia and now are teaching academia? Look, I mean, I think that my experience gives me a different perspective. Right. Because um, and some of it goes back to what I said about, you know, the language of business and the language of academia. They are different in order for there to be a better sort of synergistic relationship between the two, the language needs to be closer together. Um, you know, papers, when you read academic papers, you, you know, I wouldn't have read those papers when I was in HR. If I'd read them, I would have thought, what does this tell me? It doesn't tell me anything. It doesn't tell me how to do my job differently or better tomorrow, right? So what I'm interested in is taking the research that is out there, all of the great research and saying, let's make this real, right? Let's make this real. Let's let's envisage, pretend that, you know, tomorrow we're in an organization and someone says we have this problem. OK, so instead of going into some long convoluted explanation of, you know, social identity theory, we actually take the theory and we apply it properly to the to, to resolving the problem. Yeah, and that takes us uh, because in a couple of years we will be start to apply um, for jobs. And the transition from university and sitting in a classroom, listening to a lecture, uh, into going into a work environment where we are to apply what we've learned. How can we make that transition more smoothly and um, how much uh, theoretical um, uh, knowledge do we actually get to apply in, for instance, HR? And yeah. 
I mean, I think you actually get to apply a lot. It's just we don't use, you know, all the fancy names and titles and theories that, you know, you look, you learn it within academia, right? I mean, let, let me go back to social identity for a moment. I mean, everything that underpins EDI, equality and diversity and inclusion, is about social identity, right? So, but no one in practice is ever going to talk about social identity. I mean, you know, someone would look at you like you had three heads and say, okay, well, what, what are you talking about, right? So you put it in a different, you put it in a different context, you put it in a different framework, um, you put it in a, in a meaningful way where you're talking about, you know, subgroups of employees and then it becomes a language that they understand so you know i think it's always about trying to yes think about take the theory i mean you can look at any real world scenario you know even scenarios that impact you in groups out groups you know we've all got them we all do it and just think about what what the theory is means from the app in, in the context of the application when you're teaching your students do you find it sometimes maybe a bit difficult to find balance between that sort of um, curriculum side of you and having to teach a certain amount of stuff to your to your students and that sort of real life application that maybe you'd like to talk more about? Well, since I designed the program, <laughs> it kind of works well for me. <laughs> I, yeah. <laughs> If I'm if I'm doing it with other people's modules, well, I mean, Sean, you've seen me teach. I mean, you know, I can hardly keep my mouth shut when it comes to talking about experience in the real world, right? Even if you do think that I'm coy about it. No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for me, for me, the important thing is to. I mean, the theory has to be taught. Okay, absolutely. For me, the the important thing, and and you know what I hope that I do can do through my teaching is bring the theory to life. Right? I mean, that's what it's about, really. For me, that's the important thing. What do you tell your students about the future of uh, organizational psychology? I mean, I think this is a, a tremendous opportunity. I really, really do. Um, you know, the challenges that are out there. I mean, they were going to be there anyway in terms of the evolution of work, automation quality and diversity, um, you know, age, age profiling of workforces, all of these types of things, they were all, all, all of those issues were going to be there. But I think what what this is, what what the situation has done is really accelerated all of those things. So, I mean, I think in the next two to three years, as we work out, you know, what, what the future of work looks like, what work really is, um, where work ranks in our, you know, order of priorities, um, then I think that there's a massive opportunity for business psychologists. I really do. But again, you know, they've got business psychologists need to understand the language of business if they are going to, you know, take themselves forward in a business context, basically. Yeah. I think we, I don't know if we're going to make this a tradition, but uh, we, we ended our last interview or, or towards the end of our last interview, we, we, um, we, we started speaking about us applying for jobs and uh, we, we were wondering if it's appropriate to go out guns blazing and try to just find the very, very best job that you can immediately, um, which, you know, you did. <laughs> um, or if it's maybe better to build yourself slowly up within the field uh, and not sort of get that burnout that we've heard some experience? You know, 
really, I think sometimes it's a, it's about what's there, right? Sometimes you have to start with something that may not be immediately obviously apparent as either your dream job or a great job, right? Uh, like I said, I didn't even know who Arthur Anderson were. I didn't know what they did. I had no background in accountancy whatsoever. I happened to get lucky and get into you know, a great firm that gave me a fantastic platform from which I could, I could build my career. It was total chance, total, total chance. So I think you know, my advice is to, my, my cautious advice is, it's all very well to sort of want to be something. When I grow up, I, when I was growing up, I wanted to be a dentist, crazy choice, don't ask me why. Thank God it didn't happen, right? But you know, be prepared to flex, right? Be prepared to flex, because there are there are always great elements in any job. There is always learning in any job. It may not be immediately apparent, but it's how you kind of build on from there, right? It's about you know how you use it, what you take from the opportunity. Um, I think sometimes my you know my concern is people say my dream job has been taken away from me as a consequence of the pandemic, for example. There are amazing jobs out there. You know, they may be a little bit more difficult to find, but, you know, employers will come back and will build back better. They will have to as a consequence of this. So something that doesn't look like a perfect fit, my view is, you know, if it even looks like half a fit, go for it. That's great. Yeah, it is. is. Thank you very much, Dawn. We really, really, really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Uh, This has been an incredibly educative uh, discussion for us and uh, we hope it's been fun for you it's it's really been a lot of fun for us yeah definitely thank um, you no, yeah, I really enjoyed the conversation it seems, uh, it seems to have flown by I can't believe that we've been talking for an hour yeah I, just, <laughs> no, I just I looked at the time and I realized I actually have to end this um, so, <laughs> so you were saying no I, would, I was just saying that your insights and your experience is so valuable and especially from a not Norwegian uh, perspective as well. Um, so I really do believe that um, people, uh, the people listening to this podcast as well, will uh, learn a lot. And um, so, yeah, thank you really, really much. You're very welcome. And you know, I wish you luck in your future careers. I mean, you know, this is a great, this is a great, great, great career, right? I mean, it's really, really fascinating. I mean, I feel so, you know, privileged to have done the jobs that I've done and and sort of. To, to have this bit at the back end. And I, you know, I really do believe when I say that this is a great moment, a great opportunity for business psychology, um, provided that we all end up speaking the same language, right? True. Well, I think we're going to stop communicating anyway uh, and uh, call the podcast there. Yeah. And uh, again, just thank you very, very much. You're very welcome. Take care, everyone.